How's everybody doing this morning? We're good? All right. My name's Chad, and I'm one of the elders here at North Glencoe. And what that means, what elders are, because a Baptist elder is a rare bird indeed around these parts. Um, a Baptist elder, what we, I serve with a, with a lot of other guys. And one of the things that we do is we, we pray for you all because we love you. We're called to shepherd this church. We work with our pastor, Tom. He's an elder just like us. And one of the other things that we can be called on to do at times is to teach. And sometimes that teaching means that we get to fill the pulpit. And I've been blessed to be able to do that today. And we're studying the book of Galatians. We've, we've been in this book since uh, about mid-January. And we, we're in the fourth, what we would call the fourth chapter. So we're about two-thirds of the way through. Paul, of course, wouldn't have divided this book up into chapters because this was just a letter that he wrote. And the reason Paul had to write this letter is he was angry. He found out that this church that he loved, we heard this last week, this church that took care of him when he was sick, that he preached the gospel to, that he portrayed Jesus crucified so clearly to, has gone off the rails. Because this group has come in called the Judaizers. And what the Judaizers do is they come in and they tell the church at Galatia, yes, yes, you're saved, that's great. But now what you need to do is you need to follow these rules that are handily enough written down for you here in the Mosaic Law. We can tell from the way Paul writes that circumcision was an issue. We can tell that uh, observing special days was an issue. That means that they would have been buying into the Jewish festivals that you can find in the Old Testament. And if you go that far, speaking as somebody who has some experience in this, if you go that far, then you're going to go land in Jewish dietary laws and everything like that. And the reason that they were following these laws is for the, person, for the purpose of being justified to God. That everything evens out. Yes, I'm saved, but God, look at what I've done. And Paul hears about it, and he gets mad. And we can tell from the way he writes. I mean, he calls these folks fools. And don't get too down on Paul, because every one of us in here, especially if you are a parent, have seen someone that you love make bad decisions that go contrary exactly to what you've taught them. And so Paul writes in anger, but Paul writes with love. There are times that I teach fourth grade for a living, and there are times that, that I, I look at my students and, and I'm, I'm really laying into my class because I've poured my heart into a lesson and they, they knew it, but the test comes and they don't perform like I thought they should. And I'll lay into them, and at the end I have to be careful because I've been told that I can be a little intense. <laughs> And, and I had to look at my kids, and, and after I'm done, go, did you hear the love in my voice? <laughs> yes, Mr. Strong, we did. Yeah, it's there. It's there. If I didn't love you, I, I wouldn't say anything. And so Paul writes this letter, and last week Paul says, you know, I wish that I could be there with you so you could hear the tone of my voice change. And, and I don't know if Paul really could because this is such a big deal. They've bought into what Paul calls another gospel, which is no gospel at all. Because anything, anything in the Christian faith minus Jesus is just worthless. So 
Paul continues on with them, and he's, he's kind of got this one more thing. I don't know if you've ever had to chew anybody out before. People have told me that I've done that a few times as well. And, and as you're chewing somebody out, your, your anger will kind of die down a little bit, and then something will happen. You'll remember just that one thing that they did, and you'll, you'll get that. Let me just tell you one more thing. You think it's going to be this? Well, you've got another thing coming. You don't even know who you're fooling with. And Paul starts off in these verses that we opened up with, and, and he's kind of got that one more thing. Now, I think it's interesting that I landed on these, these 10 verses. A guy that I, I listened to a whole lot, I, I heard him preach on, on these 10 verses, and he opened up with, nobody chooses to preach these 10 verses. You have to be assigned these 10 verses to preach these 10 verses. So I would agree with him because I have struggled mightily with this since I've been assigned. The other thing that he says is that the reason that nobody really chooses these is, is, is how deep we're going to have to dig. I've got a couple of stories that I've got to remind you of today. Remember, I'm a teacher, so I like to set an objective before I teach. If I was, at my, if I was in my classroom, we'd write it over on the board that this is what we're going to do today. I want to remind you of a couple of stories. And I want us to see today what it means to live according to the flesh and what it means to live according to faith, and why in the world we would want to choose that. And I can't do that. These ten verses are beyond me. But the Holy Spirit can. So would you pray with me? Dear God, our Father, we come before you today, Lord, and we just give you thanks, God, for who you are. Father, we thank you that you give us the Holy Spirit who will, who will help us understand. God, it is all in vain without your Spirit here today. So God, fill our hearts. God, give us ears to hear and a heart to understand what you wrote to the church in Galatia and what you're saying to us today through that letter. We love you and we lift these things up in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul opens up and he says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now what Paul is referring to is he's going back to Abraham and he does this over and over and over again in Galatians. He does it over and over and over again in the book of Romans. He, I really think Paul had a lot to do with, with Hebrews. And I, I, so I'm just going to say it. I think Paul does it over and over and over again in Hebrews. And he goes back and he, he talks about this story that you can find in Galatians 15. And it's like six chapters long, so you're going to get the Chad Strawn abridged version, okay? If you've never read Galatians 15 through chapters 15 through about chapter 21, you are totally missing out on some really, really cool stuff and seeing everything in context. But here's what happens. In Genesis 15, God shows up and he's talking to Abram and he says, Abram, your reward's going to be great. I've got all this stuff planned for you and for your offspring. And Abram is like, whoa, wait, what, God? I don't have any offspring. You've chosen to not give my family any offspring. Sarah, Sarai, my wife, hasn't had any kids yet. In fact, God, my, kid, my heir is going to be my chief servant. His name's Eliezer. He's back there in camp. I don't know if you know him or not. And God says, listen, your offspring, let me tell you about them. Look up in the sky. I want you to count the stars, Abram. Count the stars if you can, because that's going to be the number of your offspring. 
Abram, look around you. I have everything good in store for you. And then there's this cool ceremony that happens where Abram cuts some animals in half and God puts him to sleep because this is how you sealed a covenant back in those days. When you made a contract, you cut animals in half and you and the person you made a contract with would walk through the animals and what you were saying is, is if this doesn't come true, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may this that's happened to these animals happen to me. And God puts Abram to sleep. And it's not Abram that walks through the middle of the animals. It's a fire pot and a torch that come down and move through the animals. It's God. The only one who this promise depends on is God. And it's a good thing because Abram wakes up from this really cool experience and it's not really clear whether it was like the next day, the next week, a few years later. But sometime later, his wife, Sarai, says, you know what, Abram, we don't have any kids. God's got all this stuff in store for you, but we don't have any kids. So I'll tell you what, I've got this slave girl. Her name's Hagar. Why don't you go sleep with her and make us an heir, okay? And Abram, because some things never change, <laughs> says, okay, <laughs> and off he goes. And he sleeps with Hagar, and they, they make this, this child. His name's Ishmael. And as soon as Ishmael's born, there's this contention that rises up between Sarai and Hagar. It's just back and forth all the time. And as this rolls on, this isn't Ish, Ishmael's not what God was talking about. Because about 13 years and two chapters later in Genesis, God shows up again. And he says, Abram! Walk before me blameless. I love how God calls into being what we don't see. That's a sovereign God. He says, Abram, walk before me and be blameless. And I'm going to do a work in you, Abram. In fact, it's going to be so big, your name can't even be Abram anymore. You're Abraham. And I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to, I'm going to make kings come from you. I'm going to make nations come from you, Abraham. And then God makes the covenant of circumcision that is causing some trouble by being warped when Paul's writing to the church in Galatia. And then he looks at Abram and he says, or Abraham, and he says, Abraham, no more can your wife even be called Sarai. Your wife is going to be called Sarah from now on. And when I come back in about a year, she's going to have had a kid. And Sarah and Abraham go, <laughs> God, have you noticed what's going on? I'm 99, she's about 90. It's not, I don't know if you understand how biology works. I've got a textbook over here we can go take a look at. But it's not going to work that way. And they laugh. And God's like, hey, why are you laughing? And they're like, whoa, because it's God. You know, you don't laugh at God. And God says, why are you laughing? And they go, oh, no, not us. We're not laughing. God says, yeah, yeah, you were, but I'm going to do what I said. But remember, you laughed. And then you've got about four chapters that go by, and it's just one year, and there's all kinds of cool stuff that's packed into those chapters. There's what happens with Sodom and Gomorrah, some crazy stuff with Lot and his daughters. And then the next thing you know that happens, Sarah has Isaac, this little baby boy, and they name him Isaac. They name, and what do they name him? They name him Laughter. And as soon as Isaac is born, that contention is there. Ishmael's about 13 years old, and Sarah looks at Abraham and she says, cast out the slave woman. 
Because the son of the slave will not inherit with the son of the free woman. He's not getting what's coming to my son. And so it was. And that's what, Abraham, uh, what Paul wants to remind the church in Galatia about, is that story. And Paul says, now, this story can be interpreted allegorically. Now, I'm going to talk education for just a second. If you'll just stay with me, this is going to be painless. We'll rip the Band-Aid off. Everything will be fine. Because you need to understand that word allegorically because when you see it in the Bible, when you see the Bible associated with allegory, you need to perk your ears up because allegory in the Bible can be dangerous. But Paul uses it. Now, what allegory is, is I tell you a story and that story has another meaning. It makes you think of something else. Let me give you an example. I teach fourth grade. And every year, for 18 years, whether I taught third grade or fourth grade, I've read my students a book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, I'm going to condense that book down. And you see if you can't catch the allegory, okay? There is this little boy. His name is Edmund. And Edmund commits this huge sin. He betrays his brother and his sisters to the villain of this story named the White Witch because they're in a make-believe land. And Edmund commits this horrible sin and this lion comes along and he saves Edmund from the penalty of that sin. This lion who is the son of an emperor beyond the sea. Now the white witch shows up and says, for every sin I've got a right to a kill. And Aslan goes, yeah, you're right. That's what the emperor said. It's written on that stone table over there. Stone table. And he agrees and he goes, this lion, this sinless lion, and he allows himself to be killed by the witch on top of this stone table. And these two little girls watch all of this happen. And in the, in the middle of the night, after everyone who has killed the lion leaves, the girls go and they attend to the body of the sinless lion who just gave himself on top of a stone table. And as the girls take care of the lion, dawn comes and they go and they stand and they watch the sun rise and behind them they hear a huge crack. And they turn around and the stone table has been broken. And the lion is alive. And it never fails. 18 years I've read this book. I always get at least one, and usually it's never just one, that a kid's reading along with me and they go, whoa, wait, hold on. That reminds me a whole lot of the story of Jesus. Now, I am a godless public school teacher. So <laughs> I, what I get to do right there is go, really? It reminds you of the story of Jesus? Ah, well, tell us more about this story. <laughs> Don't tell me God's not in the school. Our kids are in the school. The Spirit of God dwells in them, and as long as we've got them there, we can't kick God out. And those kids, they stand, and they use that allegory, and it reminds them of the story of Jesus. And that's what Paul is doing here. He says, this story, the one I told you about Abraham, can be interpreted allegorically. That's good allegory. Be really, really careful. Be really, really careful of any book about the Bible that has the word code in it. 
Be really, really careful when you find somebody who says, hey, I can show you this prophecy in Daniel. I can tell you what this statue meant. Hey, I've read the book of Revelation. You want to know who the beast is? Hey, I've read the book of Revelation. You want to know what the mark is? Hey, be careful because we have no right to bring our allegory to Holy Scripture. We have no right to take our interpretation of our own and apply it to this. The Bible interprets itself. And this is a prime example where Paul says, this can be allegory. This is allegory. Jesus does it in his parables. But anytime somebody comes to you and applies something that they've been shown, run and run hard. And Paul says this, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, if you and I had been back in those days, and we had just heard that sentence, everybody would be like, oh, no, he didn't. And yes, he did. This is the equivalent of him writing a, a sentence that would slap the Judaizers in the face. And hopefully slap the Galatians who bought into the false gospel as well. And hopefully bring them back to their senses. And he finishes and says, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. So what Paul is saying here is Ishmael. The birth of Ishmael. That's not a surprise. What, you mean a man slept with another woman that's not his wife? That's nothing new. I mean, imagine the water cooler talk after that happened. You know, Abram slept with Hagar, made a kid. Yeah, I'm not surprised. You know, that's what happens. It's just the way it is. Who gets the credit for that? Abraham does. There's nothing special about it. But when Isaac is born, imagine the water cooler talk then. He's 100 years old. What business does he have having a kid right now? I tell you what, there's no way that this could have happened unless God got involved. I tell you what. Look who gets the credit there. It's God who gets the credit there. That's living by faith. That's what you and I are called to do. We're not called to live by our own power. That's what the Galatians were doing, following those rules. Yeah, God, I know you saved me, but look at all this stuff I've done. It does not matter. When Jesus said, it is finished, that's it. Period. Full stop. Nothing more can be added. Nothing can be taken away. It is finished. We're called to live by faith. Well, that term is, is kind of misused a whole lot. So what is faith? Well, it sure would be nice if we had a divinely inspired book that might have a definition for what faith is. And as luck would have it, we do. Hebrews 11.1. 1. I'm talking to the saints of God. You all know where I'm going, don't you? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. Did you catch that? 
things hoped for. I see nothing in the story in Genesis where Abram is walking around asking God for real estate. I see nothing in there like that. God tells him what to hope for. That's faith. Faith is believing this book. Faith is not going to Aldi without a quarter in your pocket, just hoping and knowing that there's going to be a buggy loose. The reason I know that is it's not in this book. Faith is what God tells us to hope for. If it's what Chad tells you to hope for, forget it. It may or may not happen, and chances are it's, it's, it's just not. Paul tells it like this. This is the reason why Paul, in the next thing that we read when we were reading the Scripture, is Paul reads this section from Isaiah. He reads, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. If God calls it into being, whether it was 13 years earlier or 13,000 years earlier or 13,000 years into the future, it is. We step out on it just as solid as if it was in front of us. That's faith. Anything else is our own flesh. Paul says, now brothers, you like Isaac are children of the promise. Remember those stars I told you that Abram tried to count? One of those was you. One of those was me. God knew then. There's a passage in Isaiah where God talks about himself and he says, I'm the one who calls things into being. Days of old I call to the days at the end. And then he says this, he says, But just as that time, at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Living by faith is difficult. Living by faith brings obstacles. So why in the world would we want to choose that? Why go that route? Well, we've talked about living by faith versus living by the flesh. And I told you I wanted to give you a reason why we would want to go through that. You see, all through this story, there's this mention of inheritance. The son of the slave will not inherit with the son of the free. So let's talk about that inheritance real quick. One of the things that we inherit that's plain in God's Word is we inherit God Himself. Amen. Psalm 4-7 says... David, David's writing and he says, you know, you make me happier. You bring more joy to me, God, than when I see somebody else with all their new grain and all their new wine. God is better than the best thing we've got going. Later in Psalm 73, the writer says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's why 
we sing that song is to remind us God is the strength of our heart and the portion that we have, not for the next meal, not for the next week, but forever. He never runs out. Living by faith. Next, second thing we inherit. Upon our resurrection, we get a new imperishable body. Let's go to Paul. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable and what is raised is imperishable. It, that's this, is sown in dishonor. It, that's the body I don't have yet, is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body and it is raised a spiritual body. You see... We inherit new bodies, living by faith. Something else that we inherit, and I wish that it wasn't this way, but there's a good reason for it. We inherit trouble. We inherit pain. We inherit suffering. And there's a good reason for it, but let me prove to you that it's that way. Paul, writing to his friend Timothy in his second letter, He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You and I are called to obey the law. That's our job. The law is just. The law shows us the character of God. The law is God's way of saying, here's everything I made. Now this is how you run it. This is how it works. You can try and go it your own way, and if you do, this is what's going to happen. Paul, in this section, remember he opened up with, tell me you who want to be under the law. Not obey, but be under the law. So let me give you another analogy for what the law can be like. This guy out in Texas, he's a pastor. His name's Matt Chandler. A few years ago, Matt Chandler was diagnosed with brain cancer. And the way that they found the brain cancer is they gave him an MRI. That's what the MRI does. It scans the body and it shows the cancer. Directly after that, his doctor did not prescribe to him a series of MRIs for treatment. All it does is point out, there's the cancer, there's the cancer, and that's what the law does. It points out the cancer of sin. The law will also tell you that it never was intended to justify us. Not the law that's in the Old Testament, not the law that we make. We make our own law, don't we? Please tell me I'm not the only one. I know I'm not. We make that own law, that law that we can follow. But using the law for anything other than what it was intended for, to point out sin, is crushing. It's damning. It's being under the law. Yes, does the Holy Spirit reveal sin in our lives? Yes, it does. But when he does, there's a sweetness to the conviction. Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation. It says that there will be conviction. And we can bring that to God. So Chad, why in the world, you said we inherit this suffering, why in the world would it be there? Well, understand this that it is not cruel of God at all to remove from us by any means necessary anything in our lives that would cause us 
to rely on anything but him at any cost. That's why James says that we should count on all joy when we face trials of many kinds. I mean, right now, it's financially, North Glencoe has a little bit of a problem. But you know what? There's a reason for it being there. The reason it's there is to drive us to our knees. The reason that problem is there in your life is to drive you to your knees. We were talking in Sunday school this morning. We talked about the years that we have wasted and the awakening that God caused in our lives at the end. Those 18 years that I wasted in a legalistic cult would have been worth nothing if they didn't drive me to my knees and show me the power of a saving God. Whatever you've been through, it's worth it because it drives you to your knees and it causes you to cry out and say, God, I can't do it anymore. How quick the Galatians were, how quick we are to get up from there and think that we can make a series of rules that we can follow and make it better. It's not in the following of the rules that we achieve victory. Our fighting position, we've heard it from this pulpit how many times? Our fighting position is one on our knees in submission and prayer to a holy God who is sovereign. Jesus says this in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in, my, in, in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Not a might, not a maybe, you will. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. Not us. I haven't overcome any worlds here lately. It's all him. Which takes us to the last thing. The last thing we inherit is the world. Paul even uses this, this analogy that he's talking about with Abraham because Paul loved talking about Abraham. He was arguing with Jews. And when he was arguing with these Jewish people, he needed to quote Abraham. If I'm going to argue with a Lutheran, I'm going to quote Luther. If I'm going to argue with anybody, I'm going to quote what they know. And Paul does this in Romans 4.13. He says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that the world, they would be heirs of the world did not come through the law, but through righteousness by faith. What's even cooler is, is this, the one that ties it all together. Because I really don't like it when people go cherry-picking verses here and there, but I, I wanted to back things up, but there's one that ties it all together really nice. I'm going to put my big boy britches on, and we're going to go to the book of Revelation. In Revelation 21, the first four verses says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea... The sea that in Micah 7 says that God cast our sins into. The sea that holds that in Revelation 21 says the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the same one Paul talked about, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. 
We inherit God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eye. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The pain and the suffering that we inherit in this life, every tear that we have cried, it says here that God wipes the tears from our eyes. That's what we inherit. Not through a system of rules, not through a list that I can work, but through faith in God that because He said it was so, it is. So Paul finishes up. But what does the Scripture say? Because this is our response. He quotes Sarah here. I love it that Paul's quoting a gal. He quotes Sarah and he says, Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So our response, let's land this plane. Our response is repentance and confession. Because if you're not sure about those rules that you think you're not sure. It's there in your life. We love making law. There's a quote out there that says that our hearts are idle factories and at the root of making a list that we can follow is worship of ourselves. What's even more beautiful is this this deep offense to the gospel. We can bring to God in confession and repentance. And remember how we've talked about living a life of faith? 1 John 1, 9, we quote it every Sunday night in recovery. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're tired of trying it your own way, if you're tired of trying to run it yourself, run to the God who offers you adoption as sons. Run to Him. Maybe today during this time of invitation you you are looking for a church home. We are by far from perfect here at North Glencoe because they will let me preach. (laughs) (laughs) but we would love to have you in the fight. Maybe you just need to come down to this altar and like we heard this morning in our prayer time, just cast your cares on him and do that because he cares for you. Let's pray. Oh God, Father, we come to you and God, we have messed things up God, so often we would take, try to take control out of the hands of a sovereign God. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you are in control. We thank you, God, that the door to salvation stands open. God, that we can come down today and do business with you and not leave the same as we came in. 
God, forgive us where we pick up our own law. Forgive us where we live by our own flesh and by our own might. God, cleanse us. God, give us a fresh touch. God, bring revival and let it start here. God, we can't do this on our own. And we confess that now before you. And we ask you to move. In Jesus' name.